This is your host, Zach. Nicholas. And welcome to the closed screening. So if you're if you're a new listener here, we've had a few new listeners. Each week we're getting more listeners, and we thank you for that. Uh, let's give a little detailed description of what we're doing in case you've missed the trailer. We are going through the IMDb Top 250 Movies, starting with 250, working our way up the list. Each week we take a movie and pros and cons it, say what we liked, what we didn't like. Sometimes, usually Zach, me, will give maybe a little history lesson on where the film's uh, world was at this time, maybe a little crash course. And today we are on film number 243. It happened one night. So that's your little little intro for us, for you new listeners, and we thank you for tuning in. So Nicholas, I before we started recording, I heard you haven't been watching anything. I've been slacking. Life has been busy. Um, I was able to get in this film, but this film only. So I will go ahead and just put the question back on you, because it sounds like you have been very busy. Mr. Zachary, what you been watching? Of course, Nicholas. Let me pull out the, the handy-dandy letterbox. Um, where am I? Films. Here we go. Here we go. So I'll go ahead and uh, tell you the first one I watched since last episode was the 1979 Lucio Fulci, Italian director, his 1979 horror film of many names. Some people call it Zombie which is what it was titled on Shudder. Some people call it Zombie without the E, Zombie 2, and then some people call it Zombie Flesh Eaters. Why does it have so many names? I didn't really look into that much, (laughs) but ever since I, I think I talked about it last episode, but ever since I watched that two hour and 30 minute documentary style video on the history of the horror genre, sure, all I've been wanting to watch is horror films. Awesome. And I'm a big zombie guy, as you know, and I'd never seen this one. And I got a seven-day free trial on Shutter, which I did remember to cancel. I'm proud of you. I'm notoriously bad at canceling free trials. Um, stars, classic stars. Stars, Showtime. Yesterday, I'm I'm learning Swedish on Duolingo. Oh, and oh. they're they're offering me. They're like, oh, get your Duolingo Premium. It's 14 days free. And I I did really bad in my lesson because I was trying to like gun through it to make sure I get my streak. Yeah. And then I was like, okay, I got it. So I get unlimited hearts. And then as soon as I click it, I get a notification from my bank app. $9.99 has been charged to your card. $9.99 for Duolingo? I was like, what? And I went to the app store and then it said I was on a 14-day free trial. So I emailed Apple and I was like, what is going on? $10 is what they're charging. Holy crap. And then, and then they automatically opt you in, if you forget about it, they opt you into the yearly subscription. And that's what happened to me last year. I accidentally got charged $89.99 for a year's worth of Duolingo premium. Hey, if, if I spent $89.99, though, that, that would be the kick in the pants that I need to be sure that I'm using that app every day. I'm getting my because money I was like, I was like, all right, Abigail and I are going to Italy for like two weeks. We got to like plug. I'm doing this every day. And then we decided to change our plans to go somewhere else. So I was like, 
Oh well, and I deleted the app. <laughs> but now we're back on it. We're learning Swedish. It's really hard. That's fantastic. And the AI voice is not like programmed for Swedish, so it is really hard to hear what they're saying. Um, speaking of Abigail, shout out to Abigail. It's Abigail and mine's four-year anniversary as of August 9th as we're recording. Isn't that crazy? Four years. Holy crap. Four years. Anyway, back to Zombie Flesh Eater, Zombie 2 Zombie. Um, I mean, it was a it was a pretty run-of-the-mill zombie movie, but I will say I'd seen this clip like floating around just on like Twitter and on different film stuff and in school. There's a scene where a shark fights a zombie. But it's it's in like a pretty f- cool way, not like Sharknado type stuff. Right. It's all sure, practical. Sure. And then there's just one scene. That's probably the most notorious scene. This woman is just got out of the shower and a zombie's trying to get into her house and she's barricading the door. And it breaks the door and it grabs her hair and it's like pulling her it towards like out the door and there's a shard of wood and her eye goes right into the wood. It was disgusting. Um, I gave it three stars, three out of five stars. Did, didn't really do anything to push the, the zombie genre further. Yeah. Like, I mean, already existed 19, yeah, what, 1979. I mean, Night of, Night of the Living Dead. That was, what else was around by this point? Uh, there's, a, there's a plethora of stuff out. Oh really? The, okay. Like the genre's pretty saturated by 19, like the late seventies, early eighties. Okay, I'm uh, I'm still in uh, 400 blows mode, uh, where I'm thinking like, oh, these European films are so <laughs> innovative and ahead of their time. Like surely this 1979 European Italian zombie film. But like it's it's groundbreaking. It's, it's one. Of, it's so that it's an Italian director, and it's set in America with it's English speaking, and uh, some of the cast speaks English, but it's completely dubbed over. So okay. some of the guys are probably speaking Italian. It's it's kind of trippy to watch. Hmm. Okay. Um, I went to the theater and watched uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles: Mu- uh, Mutant Mayhem. Get out of here! How'd you um, like it? Well, see, I wasn't. I was never like a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles fan as a kid. That's the only reason I'm not going to see it is because I have no love for. Um, the... I think I probably watched some of the maybe the stuff on Nickelodeon as a child. But I, I was just like, it looks kind of funny, and it, like people were saying, oh, it's the Spider Verse of right Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and you can definitely tell that it's taken, like, uh, it's inspiration from that style of like comic booky. Oh, obviously. Animation. It, it was pretty good. It was. It had some funny moments. The each turtle was pretty unique and funny, and great voice acting. Great uh, cliffhanger. Gave it three and a half stars. I'd definitely okay. go see it. The second one when it comes out. Okay, cool. Good. Um, and then yesterday, Abigail and I went and saw Talk to Me, the new horror uh, A24 film about there's like a hand that you grab and you say, like, I let you in. And then you get possessed by a demon for like 90 seconds until you take your hand off of it. Very strong, uh, like anti-drug allegory in, in the movie about how you can get hooked onto this stuff and Cool. Like isolate yourself from your friends, but I mean, other than that, it was a pretty average horror film. Except there's one part when I don't want to get into the specifics of it because it'll take me all day to explain. But one of the characters has basically been possessed by a demon, 
and they're trying to find his soul who that's in limbo. And they use a little hand thing to try to find where he is. And then there's a scene where it shows like this ginormous, like a bunch of dead people in like this orgy type situation where they're all trying to like grab at this young kid and they're all screaming. I was like, that's pretty horrific. And it really reminded me of the scene from Nope. When did you see Nope? Yep. When they're all in the, uh, inside the aliens like esophagus and they're all screaming yeah i know exactly what you're what you're imagining right now um so that was the only part where i was like that's pretty creepy but other than that it was, it was a good movie good allegory and it was some like independent filmmakers who got their film bought for by a24 to distribute so it was, it was cool to see that's great and uh, these guys. uh obviously an audience members uh kind of speaking more to you zach i know that you know this but uh with the current SAG AFTRA strike going on, uh, A24 is one of those uh, independent companies that are still allowed to make in, make some films still. So uh, hats off to them. <laughs> what did uh, what'd you rate it on Letterbox? I gave it a three out of five. Okay. And then I saw today when I woke up that uh, a second one is already in talks to be developed. Okay. There you go. Um, but now on to the main event. Yes, sir. So, I'm going to venture to say that most people listening to this podcast probably don't really know what, have never heard of this movie. Had you ever heard of it before? No. Last week? Nope. But obviously we know, we know Clark Gable, the man. I'd only ever, I've only ever seen him in the Gone with the Wind. Same. Um, but before we get into the movie, I want to set the stage a little bit for the the era of uh, films that we're stepping into. Please do. Because um, I know... Just really ahead. quickly, I just want to note, uh, just for audience members, in terms of the time period that we are talking about, this is Great Depression era, specifically uh, early 1934. That's when this film was released. Yes. Um, and early 1934 is very important for the context I'm about to set. Um, but, so, uh, obviously, from... 19, uh, basically right after the, the silent era ended in around 1927 to about the late 60s, I think 1969, was what film historians will call the studio era. And it was formed from a few oligarchies that had formed during the silent film era who had a consolidated power in the film industry between basically five studios um and then for some little more context uh, we're talking about 1934 the first sound film was released in 1927 so we're only what's seven eight years removed from that and the first color film hadn't even been released until 1939 which it's it is debated on what what is truly the first color film but it's Wizard of Oz is widely regarded as the first commercial mainstream film filmed in color. Um, but the big five studios, which you'll definitely recognize some of these names, we got 21st Century Fox, which is now Fox. We have MGM, which is still around, Paramount, Warner Brothers, and then we have RKO Studios, who have uh, gone by the wayside. But you may be saying, Zach, I'm an eagle-eyed viewer. I saw that this movie was produced by uh, Columbia. And I'll say, of course, we have three little studios, which I have 
selected to talk about them a little more in detail today. And if we want to, I'll go and talk more about the big five later. But Columbia um, was considered in the poverty row of film uh, film studios at the time of filming because of how much money they didn't have. And they needed a lot of help from the big five studios. Um, And because of that, they would have the big five studios lease them actors. And by the leasing of actors, I saved a lot of money on uh, by avoiding contracting them to multi-film deals. And uh, Frank Capra, who directed this film, was their most important director, who was shooting out hit after hit for basically his entire career. Uh, The second little three was Universal, which is obviously still around today. And basically they're, their claim to fame is the Universal monster movies like Dracula, uh, Frankenstein, The Mummy, The Invisible Man. Basically, any monster movie that or monster character that was in the common domain, they were making movies of The Wolfman. They were crossing them over. Just look them up. The Creature of the Black Lagoon. They're actually pretty decent movies. Have you ever seen any of them? I haven't. Um, I've seen clips and parts of them. Um, I've to be honest, I, I feel like most of them are part of the, the cultural zeitgeist. Like, I, f- I feel like most people have heard, at least heard of these films. Mm-hmm. Like, everyone, I think everyone thinks of, when they think of Frankenstein, they think of uh, the Boris Karloff version of him with the bolt coming out of his neck. Absolutely. Um, and the last one is United Artists. You ever heard of them? I have. And they were just, this year, uh, absorbed fully into MGM. So even though they weren't producing like movies by themselves for a long time, they've still been puttering around. But they were founded under, I guess, by the name you understand, it's United Artists. They were founded by Charlie Chaplin, uh, D.W. Griffith from uh, uh, what's A Birth of a Nation fame, and Mary Pickford, who was basically the female Charlie Chaplin. Which I hate to categorize her by that, but that gives you a good picture of what she was doing at the time. Sure. But these were all like silent era film stars, directors. Um, and then they really struggled after their talent from the silent era started to retire. Because a lot of these people either didn't like the fact that film was converting into sound only pictures. Or they just didn't, their talents didn't lay over to having to actually talk when they were acting. Especially Mary Pickford and D.W. Griffith really just stopped making movies after sound. Um, if you've ever Charlie... seen uh, Singing in the Rain, that, that's one of the, the big plot points of the film was mm-hmm. sort of that transition from, from uh, no sound to sound and, and how that impacted certain actors, actresses, and the studios. Yeah, and then uh, Charlie Chaplin was their big gun, but then he started to severely decrease his film production to one like every five years instead of like two or three a year. Um, so obviously, like I said, they've been absorbed a long time ago. They were absorbed. Um, but the studios in general, be it the big five or the little three, and there were some more like independent theaters at the time. I mean, studios, blah, 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 blah. Um, but the studio was basically in control of every aspect of the films. And they were the ones that get credit with any like anything good about this film is more to do with the studio than the actors or the uh, directors like at the end of this film you don't see at the very end the last shot isn't directed by blah 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 it's a a columbia picture 
like films are more uh, marketed and sold as products of their studios rather than who is directing them. But there were directors that wanted to be more than like the man in the chair. Um, because at the time, a lot of directors were picked by the studio and were easily replaceable. They were just sort of like the studio's yes man. If a studio executive told you they wanted you to change the scene, you did it or you were replaced. But directors like Howard Hawks, uh, Frank Capra, and John Ford uh, really tried to push the boundaries of what directors could do and, and what they could accomplish in this era. Uh, and I was talking about the auteur theory last week. Um, I know at least John Ford is considered to be one of the early American auteurs. Um, speaking of studios, ownership, they own the actors basically outright. You signed a contract with them and you could only work for them for a certain number of years. You didn't risk breaching your contract so you could be ruined. And like I said earlier, people, the big five would loan their actors to small issues, especially during the Great Depression when times were tough. And a little, uh, a fun little tidbit, Clark Gable was actually loaned to Columbia from uh, MGM as punishment for his affair with Joanne Crawford. So that's why he was even in this movie. Oh, wow. He was pushed out to one of the little studios. Um, and then I wanted to relay this back to what we were talking about last week. And I think it's really interesting that we get to watch a new wave film and then we go straight back into the kind of movies that the new wave was directly trying to get away from. Um, because I don't know if you probably noticed this, but like the new wave, very like energetic scenes, cameras moving around a lot. In this movie, these cameras are put in one position. Yep. And you'll be lucky if they tilt up or down. <laughs> yeah. they'll, t- they'll, they'll move left and right, but you're not getting any, any tracking shots or anything like that. That's right. Um, and then there were a lot of, uh, a lot of these movies were shot exclusively on like theater lots, like studio lots, which is again, another thing that the new wave really despised. And then the biggest thing that really came out of the studio era, besides like the ownership rights and stuff was the Hayes codes. Have you heard of that? Yes. So talk, talk to me about this a little bit more because this definitely uh, influences this film. I, I saw uh, doing a little research for this that the Hayes Code was a big deal or, or wasn't a big deal for this particular film. So the Hayes Code in itself is rigid self-censorship imposed by the Hollywood studios in order to get them released because they thought that if films were too risque like they were in the 20s, then the government would step in and start uh, regulating films themselves. And they said, instead of letting the government do that, let's just do this ourselves. And it started from 1934, the year this movie came out, to 1968, was when they finally relented. Because I can't remember exactly, but I think there was a lot of internal pressure. And then they saw what films were being made in Europe at the time. Sure. And a lot of people were leaning towards going over to Europe to shoot their films and just think to release their films. 1969. Think about all the, all the Westerns that were like the spaghetti Westerns made in Italy. Yeah. Um, but uh, we can talk about this, the, the Hayes codes more later because we're definitely going to be watching some movies in the, in that time frame. 
but It Happened One Night was one of the last films to be released pre-enforcement of the Hays Codes. So this is often looked at as the last hurrah before the censorship went into effect. Yep. So that's the part that I saw. So it's it's pretty interesting because as I was watching this, I didn't know that. I was like, oh, this is pretty risque for 1934. Yeah. And then you go and look at it and you're like, oh, that's exactly why. Yeah. Um, that's all I have for my little, my little spiel. That's perfect. Uh, thank you for that. Um, I definitely needed that history and, uh, I think audience members did too. It definitely gives a lot of context for the time. Um, I'm glad that you brought up the Hayes code because we'll definitely, uh, reference that in the, uh, suggested scenes uh, as we get into our conversation here. Um, the only bit of context that I wanted to add, uh, just really quickly, um, I love looking at this stuff, which is how I came across the Hayes code. Um, this film was extremely popular. Um, obviously, this this film made uh, the IMDb top 250 list, but um, I know that you mentioned this last week as we were wrapping up our conversation on the 400 Blows. This film also made the American Film Institute's top 100 films list. Um, yes, I have fact, a retcon. I have a retcon. Oh, please go last, on. Last week, this is what I was about to get into. Last week, I said it was number 35. And I was looking at the wrong list. I was looking at top 100 films through the years, where they would pick one film from the last 100 years, which ranked it at 35. It is actually number 45. Yeah. So I was just about to get into that. So there's that list right there. Um, So Zach, you just mentioned that. Um, Some other things. um, In the 2000 AFI's 100 Years, 100 Laughs, it ranked at number eight on that list. 2002's AFI's 100 Years, 100 Passions list, it ranked at number 38. And in 2008, AFI's 10 top 10 romantic comedies, it came in at number three. So it is certainly acclaimed. And at the time, it uh, it was definitely a big hit. Um, when it initially came out, it didn't do well in the theaters, but um, the film took on a life of its own afterwards and made a ton of money. Yeah, I read but, that it uh Columbia didn't have a lot of hope for it, but then yeah. So theaters pushed it out of their their A screenings, but and then it finally found a life in the B screenings. That's right. And uh it definitely found a life because uh the film would go on to win all five of the Academy Awards, which it was nominated for um in 1934. So that includes Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Writing, which was uh, under Best Adaptation, uh, which is just wild. Two other films have done that. So it's it's in a league all of its own here, uh, which is something that I, I saw uh, before I watched the film, which made me even more excited to watch it. Um, and just as an aside, it's, it's wild that the awards that it went for was the seventh Academy Awards. It's hard to think about mm-hmm. the seventh. Academy Awards. Um, but. Also, Clark Gable gave away his uh, Oscar to a child that admired him. Get out of here. So I thought that his Oscar ended up uh, eventually in the hands of Steven Spielberg. It did. It somehow ended up, Spielberg got it and then gave it back to a museum. But he said wow. the important part was winning the award, not receiving it or something like that. Well, what's hilarious is, and maybe you saw this too, uh, apparently <laughs> when uh, Claudette uh, she didn't think she was going to win Best Actress. So she had scheduled some sort of cross-country road trip. And uh, apparently when it was announced that she had won, uh, Frank Capra... No, it wasn't Frank Capra. It was... Um, 
oh shoot, whoever the studio head was at the time, I believe it. Uh, oh gosh, I can't think of his name. Anyway, oh Harry Cohn, Harry Cohn. He uh, apparently like essentially pulled her off the train and was like, "Got to get to the award ceremony." And she was in some like not even dressed properly for it. <laughs> so, uh, and it's funny because apparently during the production, she really lambasted the film. She didn't think that this film was going to be successful at all. She was, I think there was one quote where she said, I just took part in one of the worst films ever. <laughs> so it's, it's just wild to me, those sort of stories. But uh, that's all I have to say in terms of context. Um, anything else before we dive into it? Uh, um, yeah, I got a couple of things. Um, it's based, you said it was an adaptation. Yeah. It's based on a short story from 1933 called Night Bus. That's right. Um, and I just wanted to point out when we're, it won best picture and just to highlight the studios, how like much control they had, the credit was given to Columbia. Like they are the ones that won best picture. It wasn't the producers or the directors or anything, but it like as the producers as that they are now. So I thought it was pretty interesting that that's wild. Oh, just give the award to a studio. So I'm, I'm assuming, I didn't look this up, but I'm assuming maybe the studio head came up and grabbed the award. Sure. It was probably that Harry um, Cohn dude. And just, I wanted to give some context on the director, Frank Capra. Um, we, we will be looking at two of his other films on this list. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Which, would you ever, could, could you show Mr. Smith Goes to Washington in your government class? Oh, I'm sure I could. I know that we watched in high school. I definitely, I feel like I did. Because I've never seen it. We didn't watch it in my class. Oh, really? Yeah, we definitely watched it in mine. I think it was because my freshman government teacher got fired uh, halfway through the semester. Yeah, yeah. So that, that would do it. That, that, put a, that put the whole curriculum in jeopardy. Um, so he makes those films. And then during World War II, he was actually hired by the government to make a series of propaganda films. So if you go on his IMDb page, there is... 10, 15, 50, 40 minute films that are just World War II propaganda in favor wow. of the Allied powers, obviously. Now, that wasn't uncommon. I feel like that, that was happening. Well, maybe it was, right? Well, I feel like it, a lot of Hollywood directors were approached for propaganda. Were they not? I don't know if it was a lot, but this he was definitely one of the, the more well-known directors to be sure. asked and accepted. Okay. Um, but yeah, that's all I have for... I feel like we've, we've definitely... Div- devoted enough uh context to this episode sure well you know what though i feel like it's important because it's like you said it's such a, it's such a different era 89 years ago it, it, that's what's crazy to think about i was thinking to myself zach as by the time i was done watching the film i said this came out in 1934 right you know we do this podcast a couple of years from now right it's almost 100 years that this film came out and so it, it's it's like you said, nobody has watched this film. I guarantee you anybody who's listening to this <laughs> podcast, unless they were prepping specifically for yeah, our yeah, conversation Yeah, unless they're watching here, along with us, which I hope right. you are watching along with us. I, I, do, I do too. Because here's the thing, I'll go ahead and tell you, I, I enjoyed the film. I really did. And, and we'll get into it. But uh, I think it's important because it's like, oh, this film from 1934, like this is one I should skip over. But it's like, you know what? That was like all the accolades yeah. is one. You know, it's considered, it's been preserved by the, the film registry now as culturally, historically significant. So there's a lot to dive into. So. Um, let's just go ahead and do it. Let's dive in, baby. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm not saying I'm apprehensive to watch films from this era, but I, I do think you definitely have to be in a mindset. For sure. I definitely have to be in a, in a specific mindset to watch a film this old 
but it's a bit different because we're doing this and you you have to watch it. Yeah. But I've had I've had this film on my list. I've been trying to watch the AFI 100 for years. Yeah. And this first off, this film is almost impossible to find. Yes. The only place you can rent it is YouTube or YouTube TV. Yep. Um, so that's kind of annoying because how can you get people to want to watch these old stuff if you can't even bother to figure out a way to get it onto a streaming service? 100% agree. Uh, but that being said, initial opinions, this movie was freaking hilarious. It was funny, wasn't it? It was, <laughs> it was funny. Because I was worried. I was like... This is just going to be a the worst hour and 46 minutes of my life. Not my worst, but like it's going to drag on. Yeah. Because, and I think that's why the context of the fact that this was pre-Hayes Codes is so important because it doesn't shy away from a lot of these, I'm not going to say dirty jokes, but just like slapstick funny jokes that you can't, can't really get around. It's too vulgar. Yeah, yeah. And just one year later. Um. But this was this is arguably the first ever screwball comedy. Okay, so talk to me about that because I saw that term come up, but I have no idea what that. So means. these films originated during the depression, and there's they're sort of like it's it's a lot of wealthy people acting extremely odd during the depression. Okay. So like these people because because this film was set in the 1930s, right? Because like we see. Uh, what's the name? Peter? Is that his? Yep. Peter gets laid off, partly because his boss hates him, and partly because it is the depression. So he's not wealthy. But then we have Ellie, who is Ellie Andrews, who's they make it seem like she's a Rockefeller. Yeah. Before we get after I explain this, we should probably s- summarize. The summarize. <laughs> yeah, I was saying um, the same thing. But these films are. She's like an heiress. She's got a lot of money. She's defying daddy by doing blah 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 blah. Um, yeah, but it's a lot of wealthy people acting very odd and it deals with them not really caring about the world they're living in and sort of doing their own like side adventures. Um, and a lot of the time it has to do with a stubborn woman and a man who is battling with his own masculinity the longer he's around her. So, uh, (laughs) other, other examples are... Like bringing up baby and the Philadelphia story. Okay, got it. Basically, so everything with uh, with with Catherine Hepburn in it is probably going to be a screwball comedy. I see. Okay. Um, well, let's go ahead and do this. Let's go ahead and summarize this film. Um, you've already kind of alluded to the characters. So, uh, essentially, the the two characters that we focus on are Peter Warren, who you talked about. Um, he's a guy who's laid off from his job. Um, he's a newspaper man. He writes headlines, stories uh, for his boss, his editor. And uh, then there's Ellen Andrews, Ellie Andrews, who is the daughter of uber wealthy uh, father. I, I can't remember his name. Um, and essentially the film opens up. Uh, Ellie, Ellie is very upset with her father because her father just does not like who she has uh, just married, the uh, infamous King Wesley, who we, we really don't know a whole lot about. Besides the we fact know that he's, he, a, he's a pilot. He's, he's a an pilot aviator. Because he eventually... Uh, lands an auto gyro onto the uh, <laughs> onto the, like the grounds of the manor where they're going to get married. Okay, I, was... I really want to talk about that in a little bit. Okay, I have a, I have a theory on that. Perfect. Uh, so 
her father's saying, you know, Ellie, no, you know, you gotta, we gotta get this annulment, you know, don't marry him. And of course, she's gonna be very bratty. That's sort of her, her characteristic. And in fact, that's what Peter will end up referring to her over and over again in the film as a brat. And so she decides she's just gonna jump shit, literally. And uh, I gotta tell you, that, that initial scene caught me off guard. I didn't expect her just to <laughs> plop into the water, but there she went, plopped in the water, and uh, she decided she was gonna take a Greyhound bus all the way from the bottom of Florida all the way to New York where she Miami to New York City. That's right. She was going to meet King Wesley in New York and uh, uh on her initial journey on the first uh, first day she runs into Mr. Peter Warren who is uh had just been fired from his job and so at that point uh you get sort of the classic trope of the the man and the woman who disdain each other, right? They don't like each other at first and they're you know, then they start to joke around with each other. You get the snappy quips in the dialogue. And eventually, you know, you get some, you know, little, little tension, right? Some romantic sexual tension between the two characters and sort of this journey of them traveling all the way up to New York. You get all sorts of things from luggage being stolen to uh, the bus careening off the road into like a lake marsh. Uh, death death threats and death threats you get all sorts of nonsense and of course uh spoiler alert as always for uh the closed screening uh by the end of the film of course uh ellie has fallen deeply in love with peter peter obviously has feelings for ellie and uh so uh to make a long story short um there's a moment where ellie thinks that peter has deserted her near the end of their journey and so ellie phones her father who's been searching for her this entire time and uh, so Ellie is in her sort of distraughtness. She decides, fine, you know, screw Peter. I'm going to go marry King Wesley. And so the day of the wedding, it's all set up. And the father uh, tells Ellie, no, Ellie, I- I've spoken to Peter. Um, he really does love you, right? He was never in it for the reward money. Um, and so she decides she's going to run off. And then by the end of the film, it's, it's very obvious and very clear that they will live happily ever after. I believe ever after going on adventures. Going on adventures. I I do think I, you br- you bring up an interesting point when you say just like every other rom com. But the thing is, for all of my research, this is the prototype for every romantic comedy in the last eighty nine years. So which I, is, I'm glad you said that. It's very crazy. Yeah, because I I couldn't. I saw no evidence of anything before that either. So we do have to kind of uh, give credit where credit's due. This is sort of the grandfather, the, the granddaddy of them all, right? You know, the original, the OG. Yeah. It really struck me just how modern the characters and the story felt. Exactly. I guess I guess the this just sort of like character tropes are sort of uh, uh, timeless. They are. And, and the thing about it, Zach, is uh, you're so right. They do feel modern. And I think it's because, I, I, and again, I, I maybe I just haven't seen enough films pre-1940, 50, whatever. I, I was completely expecting these characters to be one-dimensional. And I was, at, at the very beginning of the film, I thought to myself, oh, no, right? Here is Ellie who, like, you know what she is, right? She's the daughter of the uber-wealthy father, right? She's going to be that sort of, that bratty attitude the entire time. But again, you go on to find, right, she's, she's very generous at times, right? She's clumsy. She's, she's got more personality to her than she initially lets on. And same thing with Peter, right? You find out underneath his sort of 
macho macho persona, right? There are moments in the film where he shows his tenderness, right? He's got a heart of gold. Um, there are moments where he is a little violent. Uh, there's <laughs> there's one scene where I'm gonna break your neck, and I said, oh my, this is a, that's a different time. But uh, yeah, the char- I thought the characters were really nuanced. Um, and I thought mm-hmm. that they played well off each other. So I was happy yeah. to see they weren't one-dimensional. It is, it's very interesting to watch a film that is a trendsetter instead of a trend follower. Yeah. Because I know I, I like to watch a lot of film noir, but it gets pretty frustrating when you're watching basically the same movie. Sure. Just a different scenario, but it's always the the insurance man, the whatever the yeah yeah. whatever man it is falls in love with the first woman that ever talks to him right and of course oh she's actually bad oh the good girl that he had at home is actually yeah was the good girl all along yeah so it was nice to actually see like the beginnings of a basically a trope that is still has no signs of ending no not at all And, and you know how hard that is to do like when you really think about it like when you're crafting a story, especially one sort of as tight as this one is, uh, it, it's, it seems really simple, right? To hear, okay, the characters don't like each other at first. And by the end of the films, they've fallen head over heels for each other. But there's a lot of in between, right? When it comes to dialogue or sort of uh, posturing off each other, movement, like there's a bunch of subtle things that need to happen for you as an audience member to feel like that, that moment is burned by the end. I feel like this film did a good job, which again, really shocked me because I, I again i expected like oh this is going to be super cheesy like too obvious and on the nose like the like mm-hmm. this moment's gonna hit right like oh this is where they'll start to fall in love and it's like no like it was a pretty gradual consistent like subtle turn over the film yeah. which i thought was really well done and it's very it's 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 almost impossible to watch this movie now and not be like oh this is so derivative of things i've already seen Right. So you have to set your mind back. Be like, oh, this is the reason why things are derivative. This isn't the derivative. This is, I don't know, the, what's the, yeah. the derivee? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I watched this movie with Abigail. I don't know. I don't know. I, I asked her to watch old movies with me all the time. And she, is it in black and white? Yes. Yeah. No, I don't want to watch it. For some reason, I said, do you want to watch this? I have to watch it. She said, okay. And we were crapping up the whole movie uh just like the the things that he would say to her that's what i'm talking about (laughs) like what he would go on (laughs) the one part where he where they're on the bus and he just says shut up yes that's what i'm saying (laughs) it's like those moments where shut up or the one where she's like i'm hungry like can i go ask the man for a meal and i'm gonna break your neck i was like oh my goodness yeah um and where when there's a there's a part when Basically, the the father is so rich that he's hired a, a basically an entire detective agency to search up and down the East Coast yeah. to find her. And these two guys come into where the two are staying, and they are they are now pretending to be man and wife, and they stage a domestic dispute. And he's they're screaming at each other, and he's he's saying he's gonna hit her, and then he's like, "Quit your what is it? Quit your quit your whining, quit your whining." Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I thought I was just laughing so hard. That okay. I'm glad you brought up that particular scene because uh, that scene not only was funny, but holy cow, that scene was also incredibly well done. 
Mm-hmm. Like the chemistry. They were, they were like, acting their butts off. They were acting their tails is, off in that it's scene. It's so hard to act, first off, just to be an effective actor. Yeah. But then to act while you're in a character as someone who doesn't know how to act, trying to act. I truly wanted to, as soon as that scene was over, I wanted to stand up out of my couch and just start clapping. <laughs> I, was so, I was so impressed with that. I really was. And then Howie says, come, come here, brat. Yeah, what are you doing, brat? Yeah. <laughs> also, this is, this is, this is me. And I know this, we are, first off, the closed screening podcast does not endorse smoking cigarettes. <laughs> but I know you always talk about how cool, if you feel like you are when you're smoking a cigarette, these people are cool. When, when Clark Gable lights up a cigarette and just takes two puffs and then flicks it out. <laughs> uh, dude, do you, do you want to be Clark Gable? For, uh, I've never wanted to be him, but in that movie, just to, just to sit there in his, in his nice little suit. Yeah. And uh, smoke, maybe smoke a cigarette, maybe write a <laughs> newspaper piece. Yes. Does, um, by the way, does Clark Gable play the same character in every film that he's in, basically? Things, I don't, I, we weren't shown Clark Gable. We, no one even talked about Clark Gable when I was in, yeah. in my film school. So we don't really, I didn't really know much about him besides we watched like, uh, Gone with the Wind in like fourth grade. Sure. Because I, like you said, we've really only seen him in Gone with the Wind, which I, I feel like this is just a, another continuation of that character almost in a way. So I just feel like I have this image of Clark Gable in my head where he's just plays the same character over and over again. Well, yeah, all, over again. all these, all like these leading men are like these stoic men that, yeah, like let their guard down a little bit for their woman, right? Um, but I, I do have some some sad news about this Uh-oh. movie. Let's hear it. I have confirmed that every single person involved in the making of this movie is now deceased. It's old. Because I, I, oh, anytime I'm watching an old movie, I'm like, I always look for like the youngest person in the cast. Right. I'm like, is that person still alive? The answer is almost always no. Yeah. Because I was watching that, I was watching, and I, there's a scene when Ellie goes to take a shower at this, I guess it was like a cottage center. Yeah. A bunch of cottages, and the women play a trick on her, and she opens a shower in front of a, a woman, which is crazy. That, yeah. That scene does not get made. She basically opens the, you can almost see a naked woman. That's right. But I, back to what I was trying to say, there is a, like a young girl in the crowd. I said, she would be the only person that's still alive. But it turns out that uh, Colette Colbert was the last person involved in this movie that died. And she died in 1996. Get out of here. No way. She was the last person? At 92. So that little girl didn't surpass her, nor did the little boy who whose mom fainted on the bus that they had to get money I, to? I guess not. Wow. Um, Good for her. But I feel like this this film the the only time it really touches on social issues, which I I, I need to look more into this because I feel like a lot of these movies it's a comedy first off, so right. it probably wouldn't touch. But I feel like a lot of these movies try to steer clear of the the economic downturn that the country was in during this time. Right. It's, it's felt like good old fashioned escapism. Okay. Cause when did the grapes of wrath come out? The forties. Uh, oh, I thought, I thought the grapes of wrath was like 1933 or 36. 1940. Oh, you're so that's good. a, that's coming in in a couple, couple weeks. You got, mm, yeah. have you, have you seen the movie? 
No, I, th- I think I was thinking of the book with the dates. So I think that's what threw me off. I've read the mm. book. I haven't seen the movie. Um, but obviously, the Depression, still not as bad in the 40s. But the only time we really discuss the Depression is when they talk about the kid whose mom fanned on the bus and how yeah. they spent all their money trying to get to the city of New York City with, uh, and they had no money for food and the mom passed out. Yeah. Uh, and I, this may be me thinking way too hard into this, but what's his name? King, what's his name? King Wesley. King Wesley. For some reason, I got like, this was uh, Frank Capra's way of poking fun at the whole film industry because um, the way that this wedding is being broadcast to the world during a time of such economic, just just horrible things are happening to everybody in the country. Half the country is out of work, basically. But we have this publicized wedding, which... I mean, maybe people will need something to look forward to, but it was just absurd the way he comes in. He demands to fly into the wedding to make his own entrance. The auto and gyro. Then, uh, and then, okay, we see maybe a plane, but no, he's an auto gyro. Did you look up what that was? So I've, I've already knew what an auto gyro was from my uh, days of reading Golden Age comic books. Mm-hmm. So an auto gyro. I used to fly one. Is a basically a plane with a uh, helicopter propeller on top of it. So he flies in and makes his own grand entrance. And I was like, maybe this is sort of a commentary on the absurdity of making big Hollywood films during the time of such economic peril. I mean, I wouldn't put it past you. Um, yeah, I thought that scene was just so funny. It, it is an interesting thing, though, because I, I, I personally noticed when it came to discussion of specifically money that it was it was it was really sort of uh there was no middle ground it was the black and white like the uber wealthy father who could afford to pay off a hundred thousand dollars for king wesley's to get like get the annulment but then it's like you get the scenes with the little boy on the bus or you kind of notice like you kind of cringe every time with peter warren when he has to like give up some of his money right like when he has to give the boy money or when he has to like buy food or gasoline or something right it, it, those little things always come up and it's mm-hmm. again he he feels uncomfortable and it makes you feel uncomfortable so i really do wonder what it was like for audience members at the time when you kind of sing like you know obviously you're relating to peter right as and the fact that he's like have to really try to penny pinch right he's got to try to put her on rations right you can't spend all your money and then you sort of get the big grandose moments like you just mentioned right at the beginning of the film and then at the end with the wedding so i thought that was an interesting contrast also, uh, $100,000 in 1934 is equivalent to $2,276,932.84. Holy cow. That this man has just paid off a former fiancé to agree to an annulment. Yeah, it's wild. But yeah, half of the discussion is on money is Peter telling Ellie she doesn't know how to spend money and that she's she's an idiot for yeah. how careless she lives her life. Yeah. Um, well, what was I going to say? But, oh, I want to talk about the walls of Jericho. I was just going to bring that up next. Uh, so there is a, a portion of this movie dedicated to the fact that these two relative strangers are sharing rooms together. And 
it's pretty funny that they always get uh, bedrooms with two single beds because that's what made me think this was sort of in line with the Hays Code because from moving on forward till the 60s, all basically all beds, if you show people a man and a wife in a bed, they're sitting in separate beds. Like I Love Lucy is like the main example of anytime they're in the bedroom, they're in different beds. And if you're going to show sex, they may kiss and go towards the floor, but that camera is turning, fading to black or panning away immediately. Uh, But so these strangers are in effect sleeping in the same room together for the first time. And Ellie is sort of worried about this stranger, which rightly so. Right. So he somehow has this claw, this robe. I mean, this piece of rope that he ties from one end to the wall to the other and then hangs a blanket up and calls it his wall of Jericho. Where And he makes a joke about, don't you want to be the Israelites to cut? Don't you want to let the Israelites in? Yeah. So throughout the whole movie, oh, they always put the walls up so that Ellie can change and they don't have to see each other. And then by the end of the movie, we see that they're together. Hold on, we'll get to the second. But uh, we see they're together and he asks that man at the hotel, he says the only thing he wanted was a piece of rope and a trumpet. And then we hear that he's used his trumpet to take down the walls of Jericho. And uh, implying that they are getting it on. So that was, I think out of all the films we've watched so far, that was an ending that just felt perfect. Like the most perfect out of the ones that we saw. Mm-hmm. Like it just, I had a big smile on my face because it was, you're right, it's, it's this continued motif. I think they end up in two or three cottages, right, on their journey where they have to stop for all sorts of reasons. And they have to hang up that wall, right, that, that blanket wall, the walls of Jericho. And so uh, it, I think what makes it perfect, that ending, is that once Ellie decides to leave the wedding, you never actually see any mm-hmm. scenes of them reconciling or having to talk out the events that just happened, right? And so the film is quickly coming to its end, and then you're right, you see you see the parked uh, T-Mobile that he was driving earlier right outside the cottage, right? And you see the, the old man and woman talking about when you just mentioned, right? Why, why did he want this trumpet? And then you just you hear that trumpet, the camera flashes to the, the blanket falling to the ground, right? And then you just see the lights go out in the cottage, and you're like, man, that is, that's that speaks more volumes than any scene you could have done of the reconciling or anything else like mm-hmm. showing them. Like it was, it was absolutely perfect. Yeah. It's, it's so crazy that this film is made today. We have a whole 20 extra minutes of that's right. her going to find him. And that's right. Maybe he's going to find her and they, he ends up at the wedding and she ends yeah. up at his office. And, and you don't need it. I mean, this yeah. film showed you don't need that. And like I said, it, it, it was it was awesome. And uh, one more thing I, I want to speak on with the walls of Jericho. Um, whether, I'll say this, if if they had to do that because of the Hayes Code, um, I, I think they actually uh, did a really good job of uh, having to play with that because I think, I think the idea of having to put up right that sort of barrier it, it added to that sense of the, of the tension right the sexual romantic tension because it's it's you're constantly waiting for like the the scenes of like are you gonna like like look over or you can see the shadows on the wall like of uh, uh peter and Cl- you know clark gable undressing himself right and then she does the same thing and so it's like even as the audience member you're kind of like mm-hmm. getting a peek at each side and you're you're waiting for that moment when they're like oh who's gonna cross it is that gonna happen 
right? And there's a moment, right? Sort of a, a big climax moment where uh, Ellie uh, or Peter is talking about all the things he would do, right? For the perfect woman, right? They'd go to the island, they'd go, you know, uh, live a good life together. And she crosses that barrier, right? She goes behind the curtain to look at his side, right? And she starts being teary-eyed and sort of like goes up to him really dramatic. It's a good moment. Like the walls of Jericho were excellent, excellent, uh, all excellent scenes throughout the film. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say the reason why they added that is because uh, Colette Colbert was uncomfortable, like undressing on the camera. Mm-hmm. So that was Frank Capra's way of sort of like finding middle ground. And then they wrote around that into the Got movie. It. Got it. And the last thing I want to talk about this film is the, probably my favorite scene in the movie is after they have ditched their bus after she was discovered on the front of the newspaper and they're trying to hitchhike. And yeah, Peter gives this giant spiel about the three separate ways to hail a ride when you're hitchhiking and what you need to do with your thumb. And you could see what, what was going to happen from a mile yeah, away because sure. he is, he did his first method. One didn't work. Method two didn't work. Method three didn't work. And then just a whole stream comically large amount of cars are passing him. Maybe like 20 cars in the span of like two seconds. It definitely felt like a skit, right? Like it's yeah. a, a skit within a movie. Like obviously the movie doesn't take itself too seriously, but it's pretty grounded and realistic for the most part. But that's the one scene where it's just like, nope, over the top. Yeah. And then obvi- obviously if, if, you're, if you're following us this far, of course, Ellie comes out and says, I'll show you how it's really done. And she pulls up her her skirt to reveal the inside of her, her leg and the first car that sees her stops. And I thought it was, I read that she originally refused to do that scene, but then she saw her body leg, her body doubles leg and was so offended that that's what they thought her legs looked like. So then she agreed to do it. Wow. Get out of here. But that's about all I got to say on it. Yeah, I. Uh, the only other thing was it in classic sort of 1930s fashion. I, the film just moves so quick just because of the snappy dialogue, and obviously, that, mm-hmm. like you, you can obviously see why Claudette and Clark ended up winning their Oscars was because it. I mean, they're just they have that chemistry because the the quips they just have for one another, are, they're funny. Sometimes they're they're super dramatic, right, and over the top, like boisterous, but. I mean, I enjoyed it a lot. Mm-hmm. I really did. Uh, can I can I get a rating from you? No, I, I didn't think about a rating. No. I ha- so this movie on IMDb is rated at a eight point one. Yeah. Can I can I can I say that? Well, I'm thinking about a rating. Can uh, can you answer this question for me? Of course. Yes. Over? Do you want a shapely spinoff film? A shapely you know, spinoff. Shapely. Um, can you can you describe who Shapely is? I love so him. Shapely was a was a member of the the bus caravan who Ellie has the unfortunate uh she gets in the unfortunate predicament of sitting next to him and he is just chatty Cathy talking about everything to the point where he's basically hitting on her, which we've come to find out he's got a family. Uh <laughs> but he's hitting on her to the point where 
Peter has to come in and say, oh, you're, you're talking to my wife like that. And that's how their original ruse of them being married starts. And then eventually he finds, Shipley finds the, a newspaper with her face on it and then offers to go 50-50 with Peter. And then Peter pretends to be a mob man and says that if he doesn't scram, he's going to kill him. Yeah. Uh, I just love every piece of dialogue that came out of his mouth where he's just like, that's what old Shapley says. All, <laughs> I'm always saying old Shapley. That's what he's always saying, right? I like him hot and then you like him cold. Old Shapley. Yeah, Ab- me and Abigail were cracking up during his little spiels. I love him. Um, all right, so to go back to rating, I think I am. I think I'm at a seven point eight. Really, 7. 8. I I was sitting at an eight point two. Wow, that's so funny. We're never quite there, right? Either I'm too high and you're a little bit lower, or now I'm a little low and high. I mean, don't look. I really, really liked it. I really did, and I'm even considering right the context of the time, considering this film is about ninety years old. But I, I thought I think a seven point eight is fair. Mm-hmm. That means oh, yeah. I still I really enjoyed it. And you know what? I'll, I'll put it this way: if I happen to see this film on Turner Classic Movies, for instance, right? For some reason, gets put on a streaming service. I've got nothing else going on. I maybe wouldn't watch the whole film, but you know what? There are certain parts I would. I wouldn't mind yeah, watching it again. Watch a couple quips and then turn it off. Yeah. Um. So. Now we've come to our the end of our show, where we must ask the question. Last week we decided that the four hundred blows, as much as as much as we gushed over it, yeah, didn't hold a candle to Persona. And again, as has, I, I think we're going to be on the same page again. I can't wait until we until unless you throw a a screwball at me for. None of us say curveball, but for the, the context of this podcast, I'll say yeah. screwball. Um, I know we, we get the back and how we got the, the history of it and how this was sort of a, the end of an era. Uh, but I think this this is nowhere near, nowhere near Persona for me. Nope. Agreed. As Dead. much as I thoroughly enjoyed this movie, yeah. and it's an easier watch than Persona, it probably has a much wider appeal. It was, it was definitely a simple story, which held my attention the entire time. But you're right. Persona but just did so much. This I, I This is one of those watch. that's like apples and oranges. Like we talked about like 400 blows in Personas. Like you could at least compare those. Mm-hmm. You, can't, you can't really compare this one. It's in its, in a league all of its own. Completely different yeah. thing. I... Like you said, I would rewatch it. I think I'd definitely rewatch Persona more. I definitely think you get more out of a second watching of Persona than you would out of this. Correct. So for that reason, we agree that Persona is now the record holder. Moving on up. With three battles in a row, if you will. I get that. So next week, we will be putting Persona up against, what, 1950? Is it 60, 65s? Probably, arguably, the most well-known movie we've touched on yet. The Sound of Music. I've um, never seen you, it. I'm excited. I've seen it as a kid. It'll be interesting to watch it because I don't remember it. I remember it as like the musical. Sure. 
and I think we would sing the the do re mi song in music <laughs> class as a kid. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it'll be it'll definitely be interesting. Um, audience members, give yourself enough leeway time for this one. It sits at yes. a whopping three hours. And some three change, hours, two right? hours and fifty two minutes. Oh, there you go, almost three and hours. These old movies, you can't count on the credits. They're always at the front of the movie. I know, I know. Yep. Um. All right, so that's it for us today. That's it. Zach, you want to tell them where they can find us on the socials? So, so I'm going to say follow us on your, on your podcast platform of choice. We demand it. We are creeping up on – we're creeping. We're getting new followers every week on Spotify. Yeah. Follow us. If, you, if you're a listener, follow us. If you're not listening and you're just – just follow us anyway. Spread the uh, word. But – but follow us on Twitter at close screening. Just close screening, not the close screening, not the close screening podcast at close screening. Yep. And we'll catch you same time and place next week with the sound of music. See you then.